Hello, everyone, and welcome to the fifth episode of Relating to DevSecOps, where we dig into the development, security, and operational issues of today with representation from different disciplines, professions, and specialties so that we can solve real-world problems with people that actually face them. On this podcast, we aim to debate hard topics, challenge each other's perspectives, and clear some cross-departmental air. I'm your host, Ken Toller, representing Application Security, and I'm joined again by my wonderful co-hosts, Jameson Colburn for DevOps and Simon Dolo for Product Engineering. Hello. Back. Hello. How's it going? Fantastic. How are yeah. you? I'm really Good. excited for episode five. Yeah, man. We are a little late on this episode, but we're trying to, to knock it out. We had some life happen. I, for one, had a leak, not a data leak, but like a roof leak. So that was <laughs> pretty fun. Um, you know, I don't usually handle those leaks on a daily basis. So, um, that was not great. I was a little behind there. Uh, just been busy week for all of us, I think. So, um, just trying to bring the content as quickly as possible to you all. Now, today's episode, (laughs) um, is very people centric. We're going to cover training and teaching other teams, what you need them to do (laughs) and how to get them to sort of help support you. In general, we're going to talk about help desk, support, uh, you know, program and product management, project management, development teams. You know, a lot of it is just trying to get people to follow your advice or, or, or get on track with what you've documented or, you know, take it to the next level, getting beyond that design and planning phase and into the actual implementation. And in some cases, the support of whatever you've delivered. And I think this is pretty relevant for all of us. Uh, I think we've all had projects uh, across security and product engineering and, um, you know, even just from a UI or UX perspective, like how you, how you approach that. So um, yeah, that's where we're going today. Uh, Jameson, Simon, any, anything you want to like kick off with that, um, you know, getting other people to do what you want them to do? (laughs) Uh, I think this conversation will probably go a little bit divergent from what I'm thinking in my head right now. There's a lot of different training, I guess, areas. So you've got, you know, training a single person, training a group, and then you're breaking that down into are you talking about a completely new topic? Are you trying to onboard them into what you said, you know, convincing them of an idea and why it's a good idea without having them be too disengaged? Uh, so so I, I think it's important to cover all of those. Uh, but, you know, for me, I've, I've done a bunch of different, I've had a bunch of different experiences in training and I'm, I'm excited to chat about it. Some are great, some are not so great. Uh, some were completely ineffective and I didn't get my point across. So let's do this. <laughs> Yeah, well, let's let's assume that this is so. There's a couple avenues for security too, right? You have your sort of security awareness training, which a lot of people hate because it's you know it's very generic, and some people learn something out of that. Maybe technical folks don't. Uh, maybe some of them do, depending on the quality of that training. But I think what I'm thinking of is more like we've we've implemented something. Maybe it's a new infrastructure add or like a new management system or a new customer support module or a new uh, internal tool that you've developed to solve a business problem. And now you need to get people on board with that to use it. And everyone has their own history with tools or history with their preferences. And now you've got to sort of change their day to day. 
and how do you get them to like buy into that uh, from from your you know various points of views? Yeah, I I can I can start. I think the the most important thing that I've seen, or rather the most useful thing, is documenting ahead of time. I I think especially with a group, you're not going to get everyone on board. You're not going to get everyone's attention. People will either get frustrated or burnt out, say this topic is too hard for me, or I really don't know what's going on in this code base. I'm afraid to ask a question because I think it might sound really dumb. So I preface, you know, if I'm training one person or, or all I say, before I start, this is all written down. Don't worry about taking notes. You're welcome to if you want, but everything that's coming out of my mouth is recorded or written down so you can refer to it later. I want you to be engaged and make sure that you're, you're listening to the topic and actively asking questions during, because the things that I'm not going to train you are the questions that, that I haven't answered that you have in your mind, because maybe I've overlooked them. Maybe I thought, uh, you know, I, I overestimated the room. Maybe there's a certain skill set that I thought was there that wasn't, that needed to be addressed. So making sure that like, level of educational and documentation comfort is there before starting, I think has always been really helpful to me. Cool. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm with you on the documentation piece. I, one of the things that sort of make or break an engagement, like a short engagement, an application assessment for me, is the documentation, for example, of applications and how to deploy them. Mm, so like, yeah. because when we're sort of assessing an application, it, the ideal scenario is that we're able to get it running somehow. And some of them you're sort of figuring out or or it's like you go to the the readme and it's just obviously the template. It just says like, you know, app name, uh, description to be written or whatever. <laughs> and so you're sort of like digging through config files and talking to people and trying to figure it out. So one level of training is just having that good upfront documentation. Yeah, absolutely, and and the, the, I don't think the documentation stops at the the teacher. The you know a good example that I've, I'm thinking of right now is the first time I had to help migrate a bunch of stuff to AWS, and there's good documentation. You know, there's good discussions planning on how we should do this, but you're going to have edge cases, and we were finding random things, and the problem was we weren't updating the documentation, we weren't updating updating the training. So examples like, hey, if you're you know uh, you've got like a JavaScript application watch out, it's not going to work the first time around based on this. You have to do all these little tweaks and these magic little fixes, and then it'll work. And so that gets added to the training, that gets shared and communicated, and things get less frustrating and, and just easier all around. Yeah. I feel like this is about to go down a documentation <laughs> path, <laughs> which is okay, which is okay. It's cl yeah. classic classic us keeping keeping on track. Yeah. I was going to say like documentation is, is pretty critical for, for success here, but I think the key is really curated documentation. Uh, it, it's not just, you know, the government side of me speaking, but I think a lot of the success in training is keeping folks on a need to know basis, right? If you throw the kitchen sink at them, uh, they're going to not remember anything. So it's good to give folks context to kind of give them an overview of the why they're doing this, you know, why they need to know this, but at the same time, I think kind of having that tactical documentation that is very uh, focused on what it actually needs to get done is probably pretty pretty critical for success here as well. Yeah. So since we're in, since we're talking about documentation now, and maybe maybe, maybe maybe we'll get back to training, and and we're we're sort of in this DevOps DevSecOps world in this podcast. What 
what would you say in a DevOps world or in a in like a modern application architecture development lifecycle, whether that's agile or um, whatever your flavor of agile might be, how does documentation change for you in that world? Like specific when you're when you say are you talking specifically on the DevOps side? No, just like okay. So in a traditional uh, long life cycle, your documentation is like this iterative thing, or maybe it happens in big chunks, but in an agile world or in a DevOps world where things are automated and things are constantly changing, where do you point people for documentation that is current? Or, or what are, what's your advice on making sure that that stays current? Because from from what I've seen, a lot of times the documentation might be really good. When you first start the application, you have somebody that's this documentation evangelist, they write a good readme, they have a good idea, they put things together, the architecture is there. And then at some point when that application becomes less new, the documentation falls way behind because that discipline is not there. So like, can we automate it? Can we, you know, what can we do to make documentation easier to document? Yes, yeah, speaking from applications specifically and, and product engineering, I, you mentioned Agile. I could talk about that for years and years. I'm not going to even broach that topic right now, but talking about applications documentation, I think you you start out with this phase of you know not having anything. You have designs, you have architectural reviews. So you know, you're thinking probably some sort of online share document, whether it be Google Docs or a Confluence page or something like that. Uh, you know, and, that, and that's where I think you, you've got this this cadence of constant change where you're tweaking, you know, database designs, you're tweaking graphs, and people are commenting and being really active on these pages. So it's really easy to keep that documentation up to date. Once you start development, I think that form of documentation takes a pause. And that's where people start focusing on code rather than documentation saying, hey, we talked about this earlier, like this database is supposed to be like this, and you have a one-off conversation, I'm going to tweak this column and move on, that gets left aside. Uh, when you move to actual applications, I think you need to start treating documentation as code. You need to start treating it as uh, you know a, a fluid, active piece of your application that will change every time someone looks at your code and looks at your application and makes a change. I found that to be easy. There's obviously pitfalls there. If you look at documentation tools like Javadoc, that can get really verbose and really noisy really fast where you're saying, you know, string, string is a string and it has string capabilities and that's all that your documentation says. So you have to be <laughs> careful there. But yeah, you got to keep it active and you need to be um, proactive with your team to call that out when things that are happening uh, in your code base are changing and it's not being reflected in your documentation. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with all that. The one thing I will say there, I thought you were going down the UML diagram, uh, like sequence diagram <laughs> route, and I was just like, oh no, what is happening? Uh, but the, the thing there is, I'd say a lot of good documentation tends to get written up front uh, as an app is getting developed, right? Folks do create those UML diagrams. They do you know, create some very verbose documentation that covers, this is the reason we, we built the service. This is what it does, right? But then as time goes on, as new features are added, no one's going back and updating those diagrams, updating that documentation. So 
the thing I've always seen the most success with is, and I know we, we kind of ragged on the readme MD uh, earlier, but it is with the documentation living closer to the code, you always end up in a better place where at least it's at surface level. Like every time you look in that repo, like that's in your face. Yeah. My readme MD sucks. Like maybe I need to fix this. Uh, whereas if it's buried in a wiki, no one's visiting, right? No one's ever looking at that unless some application security engineer or someone comes in to try to find something or <laughs> troubleshoot something. You know, that's that's who's looking at that, unfortunately. And so the folks that are actually kind of in the application and working on it are never really going to get back to updating that just because it's not it's not it's not in their purview, right? Like it should be, but it's unfortunately not. But the, like with regards to auto generating documentation, I will say like using things like Swagger, right, where I kind of am able to generate my, um, you know, generate my API definition dynamically, right, is a lot uh, is a lot nicer than just writing all that down. So it, there's a lot of unique tools that you can use to, to kind of bridge that gap um, that, that maybe didn't exist in the past. And that's why we wrote really, really verbose documentation and wikis. But yeah, I, I think that the key really is to in some ways to be a documentational minimalist, right? Where rely on things that can be auto-generated and rely on providing just enough information where it won't get stale, but also you'll be able to update it as things change, as new features are rolled out. Right. Yeah, I like I like Swaggers as well. Now, keep me honest here, but like for Swagger, in order for you to, um, in order for it to appear in the documentation, that has to be written in the code, basically, right? It has to be, annotated essentially in java right? right so i think that that's great as long as development teams are always annotating the swagger which for me it's sometimes i'll discover like these hidden endpoints because you know everyone's sort of going off of this the swagger and then you're all of a sudden you're like wait a minute like this looks like it's creating a api endpoint where you know where did this come from and then you don't have that so it's like it's it's just as important at that point to ensure that that code quality component is including documentation as part of what's being looked at and i'm 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 really surprised that your first reaction was man i really hope these swagger endpoints are super verbose and not man i hope these swagger endpoints are really well protected and not shared with people exposing certain uh request paths they really shouldn't be seeing <laughs> i never said that they should be verbose i just said the documentation should be complete i think that the you know when you're talking about uh like if if for example if i'm saying hey i need to know i'm doing a dynamic test or a manual test and maybe i don't have access to the code i want to use the swagger and then I'm looking at that as a full scope of the application. And if that's not provided to me, or if I don't have access to the code to recognize that it's not complete, then there's a problem with the documentation, right? So that, so that you know, that's not a security issue though. And so if I'm looking at, to Jameson's point, like if I'm looking at that app and I'm the only one that's touched it in a while because no one's touching it except security, that might not be a finding. And is that a security finding that there's not a swagger annotation? Maybe, you know. Those, those endpoints, Ken, they're called Easter eggs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, found an Easter egg. Like I get bonus, like my bonus bonuses for security engineers should be based on Easter eggs. How about that? I like it. I, I'd support. It. <laughs> okay. Um, so yeah, I mean, the the documentation piece I think is really important to try to automate, but it's not going to catch everything. I do like the point of it being closer to code. I I mean, I do definitely realize that Confluence pages 
like get outdated really quick. Almost as soon as you hit save. <laughs> yeah, it's like immediately a tomb. Yep. Yeah. And then there's another Confluence page about the same app like a year later that gets popped up and then that's your new your new normal. And it's just it's just marked V2. <laughs> and the original one is marked it's not even marked V1. Yeah, so um, let's try, maybe we can try to take the documentation thing and bring it back on track to, you know, training people. <laughs> um, for And for that, I sort of, you know, we sort of went down the path of, doc, of documentation because it was like, how do we teach people to do the things that we are creating for, or to work with the things that we are creating for them? Um, and for me... That's always how do I ensure that after these vulnerabilities are discovered, how can I teach development teams or product engineering teams or DevOps teams to not make to make sure that that mistake doesn't happen again? And for me, that's sort of documenting the appropriate way to make a remediation and making sure that that's in some side of some kind of secure coding guideline or something along those lines. But Sometimes what I find with that is that a very verbose secure coding guidelines document is not always referenced. And so it's only as good as who reads it, right? If I have a 30 page secure coding guidelines document, it's a guideline. It's not necessarily something, it may not be something that we test for. So how, how can I make sure, or what format should I try to engage product engineering teams in or DevOps teams in? That will be more effective than a, a wiki or a document. Again, I think it goes all the way. It still goes back to automation. You've you've got that what you're doing, why you're doing. Here's the limited information I need to pass to you, and and from then on, the more uh, and and this this is definitely speaking selfishly, but the more you can do hands on and the more you can try and and mess with something yourself, I think the faster you can learn. And if you're talking about applications, I think code labs are a really good example of that. Having something that you actually have to physically walk through and code through, and you'll identify things that are out of date, something will stop working. And that'll force you to ask questions and say, you know, hey, like why, why did this fail? discover that failure and you're self self redocumenting self training and 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 working through it so the next person has a better experience than you yeah no that, that makes sense um other things i found success in is just like different formats of training some people respond better to video some people mm -hmm. respond better to reading documentation um i knew one i had uh, one mentor back in the day who would like read microsoft manuals and that was the way that he learned oh, man. Like, the latest Active Directory or, you know, update or whatever it was. And I'm like, I do not learn that way. You know, I personally, I like videos. I like the engagement of them. Um, so that's better for me. But, you know, what are your preferences? How do you guys typically pick up security guidance or engineering guidance? I, I'm like in that same category. I read white papers, right? Uh, definitely my preferred way of learning things is reading. Um, so I, I'm, I'm probably in the same category as your mentor there. Uh, <laughs> borderline crazy, you know, yeah. pour myself a nice drink and, and sit down and, you know, cozy up with a white paper, you know? Oh my God. Yeah. I can't, 
I don't do yeah. videos that well either. I'm yeah. I'm a reader. I I want to be able to rabbit hole at my own pace and for what's interesting to me, uh, which is funny because we're doing a podcast. We're talking about really cool stuff and like to me when I watch videos, just fast forward. I can just tell me what I need to know so I can move on. Uh, you know, I'll, I I will I will watch videos at like two x three x pace just so I can hear them talk faster. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I was about to say the same thing. Is you know, audio and video to me is like two x pace, right? It's getting that surface level understanding of something, and then I'm gonna deep dive it as I you know yeah. as I see fit. Well, that's that's what I mean, right? Is that that the video for me is always like how I can consume a lot of technologies quickly. You know, I can I can fast forward through it. Uh, like a training video or something, you know, you can just watch it and get that that surface level knowledge. And then things that you're picking up there, it's like, okay, now I use that manual or whatever as a reference or to dig into. And then I can go and read that with some context. But for me, technical manuals without like having that initial level of understanding or context is really hard for me to like wrap myself around. I need that like initial hit, I guess, of... um of like content. I like talking to people about it first. So, you know, James and we had like long conversations about HashiCorp Vault before I ever dug into the documentation about it, right? Yeah. And so, but I needed, I needed that like initial conversation with you to feel like, you know, why are you excited about it? Or, you know, that kind of thing. Cool, so I'm, I'm never building IKEA furniture with Ken is what I'm saying. <laughs> Yeah, I, I was I was thinking the same thing. Uh, I was also picturing myself like in a reinvent talk and I'm like, you know, I'm sitting there, I'm very anxious, you know, I, I have to listen to somebody at 1x, right? It's just not, it's just not <laughs> talk faster. Yeah, exactly. I mean, anyone that knows me, I talk way too fast. Even right now, it's like a conscious effort to make sure that I'm enunciating everything and talking at a regular pace. <laughs> Man, I'll build IKEA furniture. I've read all the documentation for IKEA furniture, man. It's it's pictures. It's great for security. <laughs> but yeah. yeah, I mean, getting back to training, I think one of the most impactful things you can do with training um, is not have experts train people. Uh, I think that it's it's good at like the first level of get like delegate somebody, right? Have the person that is a subject matter expert start to impart that knowledge on them but then have them train everyone else, right? Because an expert is going to make a lot of assumptions around what people know. And I think if you can kind of get that one-on-one -on -one training, you can really get someone um, well to well understand well what you're trying to articulate, what, you know, what they need to know. They can know, like think of thoughtful questions that, you know, that kind of give feedback to that expert, but then also they kind of build that, um, that full spectrum of knowledge. And then, when they go and train on it, they'll kind of understand that, hey, are these are the similar things that people are maybe not going to understand. These are the things that are confusing. So I, I kind of find that to be the most, you know, the most impactful model of training somebody uh, just because like if you're deep in the weeds, you're just going to glaze over things that you think, oh, everyone knows this, right? When in reality, it's like, no, that's that's a very bad assumption. So I don't know, man. I mean, I, 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 I get where you're going with that, like not having an expert dig into it, but that I feel like that's why the train the security training industry is so bad. Like and why <laughs> because it's like no experts are training phishing. You know, it's like thanks uh you know, we can like click through all of this stuff and you know, it's like people go through the training they get used to a certain type of training. But once you get past that like surface level stuff and I think this is multiple topics like you sort of need some level of expertise to to get to the next level. So 
I think it depends on what you're training though, right? Like if I'm trying to teach you to how to deploy an EC2 instance, right? I'm going to gloss over the fact that you don't know how to create a VPC probably, right? So I, I think that there's kind of a, it, it's really, it depends on also the depth of the topic, right? If you're trying to develop an expert, sure. Like you probably need an expert to be teaching them, right? But if you're just trying to teach uh, a group of folks, hey, here is some something you're going to need to do uh, with relative frequency. And it's, you know, it's pretty straightforward, right? It maybe takes like, I don't know, some amount of time. I think that it's it's a better model, right? But yeah, no, I, I agree. If you're teaching somebody secure coding methods, right? Maybe don't like train. I mean, even in that case, actually, I'm, I'm about to like put my foot in my mouth, but um, even in that case, right? It's almost more success in training a developer that, hey, this is the things to look out for. These are the things you should be doing. And then having them impart that knowledge on the rest of their organization, right? Because like, you can't be in every conversation with dev, right? So if you can start to, you know, build that knowledge organically, you're going to have a lot more success than just having that knowledge and trying to pass it off to uh, to everyone yourself. I think you raise a really good point, which is probably, a, you know, a, a conversation for another day. But really what you're saying, in my opinion, is it, it's not really an it can't be an expert teaching you. It's there's a level of when it comes to training someone, a level of maturity, social intelligence, and emotional intelligence that you need to level set and get on their playing field. And an expert can be fine in training someone, but they need to understand that the, this person can be coming from a completely different mindset. And you know, look at me, me and Jameson, right? We we come from different mentalities. And yes, before I used it, I thought, you know, deploying an EC2 instance was insane. I had no idea what that meant or how hard it would be. But, you know, that conversation should really be Jameson telling me, hey, we're going to see if we can just deploy this. Just curious, you know, what sort of deployment tools have you used before? Have you used Jenkins before? Great. I'm going to start from here. If I'm going too slow, please let me know. If I'm teaching you something you already know, please, like, let me know and move on. And it's not you know, you're inferior or you're, you're, you're less than, it's just a different skill set. And having that, I think will make people more engaged and more willing to ask questions or be honest and say, I honestly have no idea what you're talking about right now. This is really confusing or no, I have actually never used this before. So I, 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 again, a different topic for a different day, but that, that to me, I think that is the most important part about training someone is having them comfortable with you teaching things because you don't want to be talking at them. You want to be talking with them and having that conversation. So I think what you guys are saying is it makes it important to put sort of a a, um, a line in the sand between a mentor and training somebody or in training on mass because James and some of the things that like that example that you just gave Simon I think it's really important you know Jameson I know that you're like super humble and don't consider yourself like an expert and I'm saying that truthfully. Um, so, except but, on Pearl. Yeah, except on Pearl. We had to bring it in. Uh, I knew it was coming. But but what I will say is that to me and to Simon, you can correct me if I'm wrong, you are really an expert in DevOps. Right? That's why you're representing DevOps here. So we Agreed. look to you to be trained for that. But it's more of a conversation, like a one-on-one, -on -one, hey, you know, I don't really understand this concept. Can you help me understand it? And you are good at explaining those things to on a in a one-on-one -on -one, whether or not you feel like you can do that on mass no yeah i mean that makes sense and i i guess my my perspective a lot of, is more in the case of training in mass right and i think that 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 is kind of a different level right where you're trying to 
disseminate a lot of information quickly so that you can roll out new product, new feature, you know, whatever. Uh, and so it does kind of change the the mentality. But I mean, I, I'm going to flip this back on you, Ken, because I don't think you you really spoke enough on this. And I would say you have the most unique experience or um, unique position here because you're used to training. I wouldn't say difficult people, but maybe uh, folks that maybe aren't as re- you know uh, receptive to the training that you're giving them. So. Like, yeah. From that perspective, you know, what is what has been your experience there with, you know, training in mass and trying to get folks to follow, um, you know, whatever kind of guidelines you're trying to roll out? Sure. Yeah. There's a couple of things there that you that you actually touched on. One is the idea of creating uh, the industry term. It's like sort of happened is the security champion, right, is creating that within each of the organizations or teams. And that's really effective if you find somebody that's willing to be mentored by a security person and share knowledge. And that's a two-way street, I, I think, is that ensuring that the relationship that you develop with a champion is not one way, that you're there to learn from the developer or or whoever you're working with, and they're there to learn from you and ensuring that that relationship is established so that you can enable training in other teams. So I really like that approach that you brought up. And then training, training um, like a group of people, I think, is just really important to know your audience and whether or not you are able to adapt to that audience. I will say that sometimes I'm not that I'm not that good at it. Like there's a certain level of um, of technical knowledge I think you need to have to have certain security conversations. And sometimes it's hard for me to roll that back. You know, you're right. I do make some assumptions when I'm going into sort of a product engineering team to that when I talk about how to remediate something in their specific language, that they're going to understand that. But I've had surprises there where someone will say, I've never heard of that method in Java, right? Or I've like, I don't even know what cross-site scripting is. So, you know, you're, and that's something that I've learned to like, try to navigate by bringing that uh, up, up front. Like, Hey, we're going to talk about these things today. Um, just let's, let's get it out there. Like here, here's like the def- the definitions that I'm there. Sometimes I'll ask people like, how many people are are, are developing in Ruby, <laughs> you know, or how many of you? No. <laughs> I, I, I knew, I knew I'd, I'd get a reaction there. Then you but walk like, away. <laughs> yeah, I, I was going to, you know, but how many people, you know, just trying to get, I think it's important to start all of your sessions with determining who you're talking to. That's not always easy. People don't necessarily like being called on or, or admitting anything or engaging with you. So it's hard to do that, but I'd like to try to get a, uh, a sense of the room. I, you know, I do that talks too, just to try to figure out like who I'm talking to, because sometimes that can adjust how you're going to present something. Um, I will say that I, because I like videos and I like consuming videos and consuming content, I try to do different formats. So I will document things. I will do demos and record them. And I will like we're doing this podcast, people are consuming this a certain way. So I think that it's important to, if you have time, to get as many formats as you can to get to as many people as you can that may learn differently. I don't know your audience. Yeah. Does that help? 
that makes a lot of sense. I, I think that's the uh, that's the title of this podcast. Know your audience, or at least this episode. Um, I, I think that's when you're training people that that's really important um, because that that technical depth is, is key of, of kind of being able to uh, recalibrate um, you know what you're speaking about and kind of how you're explaining things based on um, the level of technical sophistication of the audience. Yeah, I will. There's, there's gonna be like one listener. It's like don't know your audience. <laughs> i i am curious to you know when it comes to the topic of training how the two of you feel about training people when there is a a a portion of your training that includes talking about legacy applications and the the choices that were made behind those applications and essentially starting with an apology and at least that's how i start i start like i'm sorry i'm about to talk to you about this horrible topic we have this application that crashes every day. Uh, we can't fix it for these reasons, but you need to know about it. So let me let me share this pain with you. I, I'm curious what y'all think about that. Like from a not insulting people that have worked on it. Yes, I I yeah. am I am a full advocate of of blameless culture when it comes to applications. By the way, if you've yeah. written code and it's six months later and you don't think it's total crap, you're kidding yourself. That's not a thing. <laughs> I think you just classified under known issues. <laughs> yeah. It's just the topic at the bottom, known issues. Exactly. It's just part of the user manual. And you hide it, you hide it in a, a V7 confluence page somewhere that no one will ever find. Especially security. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Man, I you know, that's a good question. I think that's a cultural thing because you know, you're you're about like you said, you're about blameless culture. It's sort of you will find um, everywhere somebody sees something legacy, they want to reinvent the wheel or security comes in. They're like, why would you do it like this? And um, part of this podcast is trying to peel that back a little bit too, because really we're all guilty of that. I mean, I'm definitely guilty. Oh, of yeah. that, right. Yeah. We're all, I think we're all guilty of sort of being like, why would you do it this way? And it's important to step back and say, I'm sure there was a reason that this went in this way, you know? Oh, and right at the time. Yeah, because I don't think that if it's a, a glaring mistake or issue or, you know, just like a, a badly designed application or policy or whatever that... Or you've people got a gonna, deadline. Yeah, you no got to make gonna, compromises. No one's going to fight. No one's going to fight you on the I, on the fact that it's a problem most of the time when i talk to people about legacy apps it's the way that you described it you're like i'm sorry about this these are all the reasons that this happened this way this is where i think this came from this is what we're trying to do to fix it or we can't fix it or what you know what can we do and i think it's important to be honest with your security team about it because they can help you mitigate those risks in other ways uh, even if you may not have the manpower to like overhaul the application or start new or start fresh Yep, and and if the that communication vessel is again know your audience, I think it's a lot easier to level set that. I can't tell you how many security sessions I've had to say, again, I am so sorry. This is not happening anytime soon. I understand it looks like you know I'm holding some dynamite in my hand, and I'm just saying it's totally cool. It's gonna be for a while, and I'm I'm sorry about that. <laughs> I apparently keep going back to explosions on this podcast. <laughs> hey man, you know it's a, it's a it's an explosive topic. 
Was that that was a bad dad joke? But we're gonna get through this. Take it. I feel like I feel like you guys just like mute so that there's this dead silence on the podcast every time. All right. But look, I mean, we we've talked about documentation and training. Uh, any last words um, on this one? Not not like this is the last podcast. <laughs> any anything you guys want to close out with before we uh, before we end? Training is hard. Know your audience. <laughs> Simon just when someone comes to you with a heap of trash and has little deer doughy eyes and is trying to share it with you don't look at them with like just the smiting eyes of God try to understand the other person and I feel like this doesn't just go with tech this goes with everything understand the background listen figure out why it's there and join them in whatever's going on and try to make it better. Cool. Yeah. For me, it's, uh, if it's not working, try something different, try a different format, um, for your training. Try yeah. Hard. And, yeah. Yeah. And try hard. <laughs> try uh, hard. And that wraps this episode. Uh, hopefully it's been, uh, easy to listen to and, um, and you've learned something from it. Uh, as always, uh, if you want to give us any feedback or, um, suggest a new topic. You can reach us on Twitter at R2DSO, uh, or you can email us a, a email. Uh, God, I can't talk. Or you can email us at security at R2DSO.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>